Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, as always, thanks for the introduction there. We got Stuart Sink this week, 2009 Open champion on the podcast. And, of course, so many great stories from Turnberry and that week at with Tom Watson beating the legend, the living legend at that moment. How strange that felt. Uh, he gets into, almost felt like he was watching it on TV because of how old Tom Watson, how much of an icon Tom was. So, so many cool memories we get into with that. The Open Championship. Reagan, his son, is going to be caddying in his first Open Championship. So, think about that. Your dad is a Former champion, it's one of those great events. So what a cool experience that'll be for them. Um, and also just too, Reagan, what that d- dynamic's been like with his son on the bag, how cool that's been. Ryder Cup memories, you name it. So many cool things we're going to cover here with Stuart Sink. Before we get to that, check out EncoreGolf.com. The Vero X1 Golf Ball, I've been using it recently. I love the combination it has. Distance, accuracy, but also combined with feel and control around the greens. We want that. We want those X factors um, as we're chipping and make sure we still have that constant feel and control chipping and putting in the short game. So you get that with a Vero X1. You can use my promo code B, the letter B, Clubhouse. Uh, to get 10% off from EncoreGolf.com when you order their golf balls online. Check them out as well on Instagram, EncoreGolf. And let's get to it. Stuart Sink on Beyond the Clubhouse. Awesome to be joined by my next guest here, Stuart Sink, eight-time PGA Tour winner. He's a 2009 Open champion, five-time Ryder Cup player. Stuart, what's going on, man? How are you? Not a lot. I'm doing fine. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I love good. this time of the year. I love Lynx golf. I love when it's July. It seems like we're always, there's so much uh, sunshine and you're able to play golf like all day, basically. But you're getting ready uh, for the Open Championship and what, you know, for you, I, I guess what memories come back from 2009? What what couple memories are really kind of your most sentimental from from that win? I think the biggest memories that, that jump out at me right away are... Um, immediately post tournament, you know, having the claret jug and my wife and my son, my two boys out there, um, able to celebrate that with me. And then, um, probably a, a very close second was actually not something that decided the tournament, but the putt on 18, the, um, in regulation that I made birdie on, and I had to still wait 30 minutes to see if it was going to be enough. And as it turned out, it barely was. So yeah. those, those moments. And then, you know, the whole playoff with Tom Watson was just something that, almost outer body experience kind of memories. Like uh, I remember watching that um, in my, you know, in present myself, but also almost feel like I watched it on television. It's just a, such a, a strange set of circumstances with Watson being involved. What do you mean? Just because like you, you'd grown up watching him play and it's like, it was just yeah. a wild feeling or. Yeah. Because uh, Tom had mostly retired by the time I started playing full-time on the tour. You know I mean? 97 was my rookie season and um and tom didn't really play a lot of golf tournaments after that so uh we didn't cross paths very much uh he was like a legend of the game right you know it wasn't like i was up against you know the current number one player in the world or something it was like this is guys it's almost like a time machine we're in 
And we're at the British Open, which already kind of feels like you're in a time machine in a way. <laughs> yeah, no, Timeless Links Golf. And, and there you were at Turnberry. So I, I got a question for you. So have you spoken or, or what's the most memorable moment you had had with Watson after beating him at Turnberry? Did you guys ever joke with each other kind of a couple years later at another Open Championship? Or um, we, we didn't really talk that much about what went down that day other than Tom took an interest in how I was playing and um, my career, you know, what's been going on. And then he and Lee, he and I had um, another unfortunate something in common, which was both our wives got diagnosed with cancer and Hillary had, you know, a battle and didn't make it. And yeah. so that became after, I don't know how many more years that was six or seven years down the road, that became our bond where, um, you know, something in life that's a little bit more important than who wins the Claret Jug that day took over as sort of our, what we shared with each other. And, and uh, Lisa and Hillary were, they were both in Houston getting their treatment at the same hospital. And, um, you know, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, Tom was in Kansas city. So we both chose Houston and I saw him in Houston one time when we were both down there for our wives and getting away from things just to go practice a little bit. We, we, it was so strange that day we were, it was a cold day in Houston and we were the only two people in the parking lot. I drove up and I saw a car with the Kansas city tag on it. And I thought, no, no way. And Come I on. go to the shop. I check in real quick. I go to the range and sure enough, Tom Watson's the only person on the range. And so, um, yeah, we, we got to catch up a little bit then. And it's it just, that became our bond. That became the, the thing that we had in common, you know, where we have that, that the golf bond with a lot of different people, you know, you can talk about the courses, you can talk about the way the round played or the greens or whatever, and you can share experiences like that. But, the, the bond we had about our wife's diagnosis became uh, a lot more strong. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I did now jokingly, did he ask you for a rematch of a four hole aggregate at that point? And once you were on the range or what? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. Uh, no, he didn't want any part of me. <laughs> no, he, he did. We honestly, you know, he just, he was super kind, just like you thought he would be. I mean, if you could draw up a, if you could imagine a conversation in your mind about how Tom would have been after the playoff that day, that would have been, if you can imagine the most like uh, generous and professional and courteous conversation, that would have been it. You know, he was happy for me. I felt like I, I, you can tell obviously that he was upset for himself, but he, I never saw him without a smile on his face. And um, he, he, I guess he played enough golf and he's won and lost enough where he knows what it feels like to do both. Yeah. Well, you know, you said something interesting that said that he was happy for you. One side of him was happy for you. You and I spoke about this at Torrey Pines. Um, you guys are competitors. You're at the highest level on the PGA Tour, going for majors, going for, for tour events. But yet there's also this side of being happy for others. As we saw with Kevin Streelman stopping and watching, soaking in the moment of you and Lisa and Reagan winning at Safeway, how big that was and, and how cool you know, Streelman was able to get out of his own competitive mind and, and appreciate that. So, so what does that mean in the game for you? Like being happy for others, like how do you separate that with being a competitor? Well, I, I think, you know, it, it goes back to um, my, the basis of my life really, which is my Christian faith. And um, in the Bible, it says that Jesus came to earth, not to be served, but to serve. And he did a lot of serving, a lot of serving. And so it's hard to be Christ-like and it, it, it's impossible for us. That's why we have Christ. That's why God sent him, you know, because we will never achieve that level of perfection and that kind of service. But when, um, when you can take yourself out of a just almost hundred percent self-centered game where you're not a member of a team, most of the time 
you're just strictly trying to do your best and you're, you have to be focused on yourself. It's uh, I think it's the nature of, of our Christian faith and Streelman is like me that we would want to show love and show happiness for others. Even though Streelman may not have won that day, he stayed around and waited for me to finish. We're good friends. And that meant so much. Chesson Hadley, by the way, did the same thing. And that, that made, it made my day that he was waiting and it just, you know, those moments, seeing those faces at the end of the round, um, you'll never forget that. Mm. Well, you know, we talk about some of your friends on the tour. I think about also Zach Johnson. I mean, you guys are managed by the same company. You guys have known each other for so long. What is a fun, what is one of your favorite memories? I mean, you guys have been out here for almost, you know, two decades in some cases or a little more. What's one of your favorite memories with Zach? I played a lot of practice rounds with Zach and he's probably my, I've probably played four times the practice rounds I've played with anybody else with Zach Johnson. We always play practice round together and, um, and it's been going on for years and years. And, and yeah, we're, he's probably my best friend on the tour as far as being like a, a real confidant. And, you know, we just don't really talk about golf very often. It's just other stuff in our life. Um, our families are close. And, and so um, my favorite memory playing with Zach was in masters in 2007, we had a practice round together there and it was a uh, cool and rainy masters that year in the practice rounds and um the golf course playing really long and i remember hitting my drive up 18 and hit zach hitting his drive up 18 and when we walked to our balls i was probably about 40 yards ahead of him and zach was way back down the hill and he pulled the head cover off and went to hit a second shot and i remember my caddy frank williams saying it's a lot of golf course for zach this week and um <laughs> i was thinking to myself gosh he's hitting the wood into this hole that's like this hole's hard to hit an eight iron in he's hitting the wood in it's going to be a lot of golf course I don't like Zach's chances. Well, that was 2007 in the practice rounds. And um, I think we all remember what happened in 2007, the rest of the week. Um, Zach yeah. won. <laughs> so it was a lot of golf course for Zach, but it was a lot of golf course for everybody. And, and uh, shows how much, uh, that's why I don't place bets on golf tournaments before the round start, because I can't judge anybody by their skills. For sure. Well, you know, I think about Zach Johnson. I think about memories with him, but you know, listen, you've been in part of five Ryder cup teams. So there are a lot of players that you've, bond with over the years in those events. What are a couple of your most lasting memories in Ryder Cups in your history? 2010, I think the, the probably single most memorable moment for me, um, I, I was uh, in a match with Matt Kuchar and we were facing up against Rory and Graham McDowell over in Wales. So, you know, the a good team and um, a lot of home support for those super popular guys and and we were the enemies, of course, you know, the Americans, the ugly American. And our match was close. And I believe it was I believe it was a tied match on 17. And um, we were playing alternate shots. So Matt hit the ball from the tee and hit it about 30 feet. And then um, I think it was Graham hit the tee shot to about 10 feet, maybe less, maybe like seven or eight feet. It was like really stuffed in there nice. and. Um, I knew I was going to have to putt and they had just told us that we were going to go out again, like almost immediately. There was a lot of rain early in the week. We were a day delayed already. So they had told us like on the whole previous, like you guys be ready to go. Cause you're, when this match is over, you're going to turn around and go to the tee in about 15 minutes. So I was like, and me being like a food person, my first thought is <laughs> that's going to really hurt my lunch hour. <laughs> Big time. And so um, while Matt was hitting, I asked assistant captain Davis love, which is funny for me to ask, ask that like a, Hall of Famer and lifetime member of the tour. One of my people I look up to the most to like, Hey, 
go grab me a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but he did, he brought me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I whooped it down between the tea and the green. And when I got to the green, it was, it was my putt. And I was still kind of like, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I was like, I'm sorry, but I'm just, I can't putt with a mouthful of sandwich. So um, I thought you were ice. When I saw that live, I thought you were icing them, man. I mean, they're, they're the defending us open champ the Rory. I mean, I thought you were, uh, you know, start drawing that <laughs> I out. wish I was, I wish I was strategically that smart to be able to do something like icing, but no, I was just like, I'm not going to get to have lunch. I want to have lunch now. And so um, I remember that on the coverage, they, uh, they thought that too. And they made a big deal about how I was like slowing things down and icing them and all that. That was so far from the truth. I was just trying to like whoop down. My sandwich. So um, when I got to the green, the sandwich was gone. I think my caddy might've finished off the rest of it, but uh, mark the ball, read the putt and hold the putt. And it was a, awesome moment and then they missed so the moment of making that putt though and Matt Kuchar and I just like uh, I mean a huge celebration which turned into um I believe that turned into a match win I'm not exactly sure if we won or if we brought that Matt to tie but that was a big moment you know that the uh, the reversal of that putt on the 17th hole is such a, a key moment in the Ryder Cup match Yes. Well, you're against uh, away fans, obviously uh, European Ryder Cup fans at that point. You had mentioned in a previous podcast that there's a really funny thing that a, a fan yelled at you. It was what I was during no laying up podcast. Uh, he had brought up 2001 Southern Hills and you said, hey, re remind me of I need to tell you something about the yeah. funniest thing I've ever heard from a fan. Okay, uh, you didn't get to it then, but but what can you uh, remember of the funniest? One oh, I got to it. Yeah, I think he just edited it out. Oh, did he? <laughs> um, yeah, but. Um, what, what happened was, um, I, I missed a really short putt at Southern Hills on the last hole where I thought I was just getting out of the way for Retief to go ahead and two putt to win. And so I missed my little one and a half, two footer just to tap in. I was a nervous wreck and, um, I made double bogey on the hole and then Retief goes and, and he three putts from no more than 10, 11 feet. 11, I mean, yeah. just a no brainer. And, um, he three putts and it ended up meaning that I missed by one. So my tap in mattered. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much a shock to my system. And the next week I played well. And on the last hole, I had a, um, I had a long putt for Eagle on the last hole and I put it down there about two feet. I mean, it was a, it was pretty much a, I'll finish, you know, tap in situation. And when I was walking down to the hole, one guy in the crowd yelled, sink, don't putt out. Because, <laughs> yeah. and it was he was of course, you know, referencing what had happened on the week before. And as soon as he said that, I, it kind of like became obvious to me, like, okay, the rest of the world saw that and um, I got an issue on my hands. And so, um, <laughs> you know, actually that, that was a, a tough moment for me. Um, it was a tough year after that. I, I actually thought that I would be able to skate right through that. And, you know, to be honest, I think if, um, if I make my little putt, I don't think we're three putts. I don't, I yeah. don't think I was, I don't think I was meant to win that U S open. And, uh, it's not like I had a putt to get in the playoff and, a, and I missed a one and a half foot putt to get into a playoff. I missed it. And then what happened happened. But the truth was at the time that that really did affect me and it bothered me. And um, my, I was a little bit concerned about my public perception and I felt like everybody thought I could putt. And I was like, you know what? I can putt, but everybody thinks I can't. So I'm just going to go with them. I'm just going to believe that. And so it, it took me a little while to um, kind of work my way through that. And, um, but that, that's hard, you know, for a golfer. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, some of the NBA players that, that are just phenomenal players, but they struggle from the free throw line. You know, mm -hmm. it's um, once the fans and the media get a hold of it, 
then it's uh, it kind of can be relentless. And the comments that I heard over the years, I mean, over that year were uh, sometimes they were pretty relentless. Yeah. I mean, I think of uh, Nick Anderson in the finals, remember missing four straight free throws there to close out game one and they never would win a game at all in that finals. Um, Total psychological game. So we're talking about funny comments. What's the funniest comment you've gotten about your hairline and uh, (laughs) it's the tan uh, bald line. I've gotten so many comments. about my, I mean, yeah, I've gotten so many comments about the tan line and you kind of see it now. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not as bad right now as it has been in the past, but um, I've gotten so many comments about that, that they all blend together. And I don't remember a single specific comment, but I can tell you the most recent one. So my, both of my sons are getting married one later this month and one in September. And uh, we were up checking out one of the venues with uh, my wife and I were last week. And um this young lady, she's probably uh, just out of college, maybe like 24, is the manager of this property that we're looking at to host one of the brunches. And when the tour was over and we were sitting down, um, kind of getting the contract printed out and signing everything, she said, you play golf, right? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, my husband told me that if I see you, that I need to ask you about your tan line. <laughs> and I'm like, hey. <laughs> I'm just, Hey, uh, I'm glad that they asked me about something because everybody's got to have some kind of trademark. And if I didn't have baldness, I'd be a pretty regular dude. I mean, and (laughs) I guess the the British open with Tom Watson is another thing that I stand out for, but you got to have something that keeps you like, uh, you know, kind of above and uh, separated, differentiated from the rest of the crowd. And me, it's my bald head and my tan line and uh, the open championship against Tom Watson. I'll take those. Speaking of Tom Watson, uh, give us the, uh, give my listeners a story of, you had read something about chipping advice from him as a kid, right? And and you were able to kind of put that into play eventually at Open Championships, maybe even against the Open at Tom uh, in, in 2009? Yeah. Absolutely. And when I was a kid, I didn't really have an instructor necessarily. I didn't take lessons. I just, um, I was part of the junior clinic. And um, by the time I was like 11 or 12, I was kind of teaching the junior clinic. And just when the pro was too busy, he'd be like, hey, uh, go out there and take them through the drills. <laughs> so um, I didn't really have a lot of, uh, instruction growing up, I learned by playing golf and um, by reading. My dad actually kind of helped me with uh, Ben Hogan's book about the fundamentals. So um, I just picked up articles from magazines and stuff like that. And one of the articles I read was written by Tom Watson. And it was it made a pretty big impression on me so much that I don't remember reading any other articles, but I remember that one. And the the premise of the little article was that when you chip from around the green, you should aim to land your ball on the little low spots in the greens. You know how all greens, even the greens that look flat have little, little rises and falls. And so Tom said, you should always land the ball or try to land the ball, aim for the low spots when you're chipping, because if you hit it too far, you catch a little upslope and it slows the ball down. If you hit it too short, it catches down slope and it speeds the ball up. So it should help you with your dispersion. And I thought, oh, that's pretty genius. And I, I immediately put that into play. And I always have thought about that when I'm hitting shots around the greens. But then when I go to the Open Championship for the first time in 2000, no, in 98 at Burkdale, you know, the way the, the ball bounces around the greens and the way you have to expect a lot more roll, it really was magnified. And I thought it was just brilliant how you, you need to aim for the low spots all the time there. And so I, ever since my first Open, I've always – uh, use that strategy that I learned from Tom Watson. And, and I'm sure I, I can't point to any specific shots at Turnberry, but I'm sure probably a dozen times during the week, I thought about that. Yeah. 
I, I can imagine, um, especially because it gets so tricky there. Um, chi- I mean, chipping is a different ball game on Lynx courses, it seems like, than it is on Parkland courses. Um, as we get into instruction a little bit, I want to ask you about your pre-round practice routine. For Stuart Sink, what is your kind of your go-to process there in your pre-round warm-up for a round? Yeah, um, that, you know, <laughs> I don't even know how far back to go in this because I feel like the, the pre-round routine starts the night before. Um, and literally what? it, it actually just, does. Well, how about this? L- l- let me go back to just, uh, the actual warm up on the range and, and okay. you know, with well, the clubs, yeah, that's with the pretty clubs. easy. I, I can, I can, I'll describe it kind of two ways on the, when I walk out of the locker room and meet my caddy who right now is my son, Reagan, the first thing I do every day, I have this, a set thing where, um, I do a little bit of what my coach and I call block practice, which is, I set up a little station for alignment and for working on my eyesight at uh, a little station that I do about anywhere from six to 15 putts. And I just try to work on my routine and my start line and make sure the ball is starting where I see it. And I use a dime to tell me like the size of a dime. If the ball, if you put a dime two feet from your ball and you roll your ball across that dime and it hits the dead center of that dime, that putt goes in from 10 feet on a straight putt. 100% 100% of the time, if you have the right speed, as long as you have the proper speed. So I think that's a pretty good way to warm up. And my coach and I decided that that's a good thing for me to put in. It warms up your – it gets you ready to uh, what we call like routine it to death because that's the yeah. that name of the game in golf. Uh, we, we work on routine, alignment, rhythm, and hitting that dime with the ball. And that's six to 15 putts, and it takes about – two or three minutes to set up and it takes about four or five minutes to complete. So that's the first thing I do. And then I'll put around the practice screen just for, you know, three or four minutes to get speed and work on a few short putts and left, to right, right to left, just uh, a little bit. And then I set up a similar block practice at the chipping green and do a couple little chips, a couple low ones, a couple of high ones, a couple of different clubs, just go through a little routine um, over there, then chip around, hit a couple bunker shots. And then I'm only hitting balls. I'm actually, by the time I get to the range and hit my first shot on the range, uh, normally Reagan or my caddy, whoever it is, will tell me like, all right, you got this much time. And yeah. most of the time for me, I have between like 20 and 26 minutes of that's how much time I'm actually got to warm up. And, but the key to that is, and I'll go back to sort of describe what the pre pre round looks like is I've already gone to the workout trailer and done about a, 35 minute warm up routine where it's not really like weightlifting, but it's also not just like yoga either. It's like actively getting sweaty, getting the heart rate up, lunges on the bike, stretching, you know, it's enough to get me sweaty. And um, so my body's already warmed up. So by the time I get to the range and hit that first shot, I'm not like, oh, oh, time to loosen up. You know, it's, I'm already loose. I'm ready to go. I hit the first couple of shots and it takes me, I could probably hit five shots and go straight to the tee and be completely loose. But mm. It, what that does is it helps me actually practice before I get to the range and actually focus on like contact rhythm, ball flight, you know, instead of just focusing on like get the kinks out. You know, the so way then, I, a lot of players do that, it, I'm, I'm not alone. Tons of it's, it's hard to get a space in the workout trailer in the mornings before the rounds because it's so popular. But the, the way that started with me was by accident. I used to absolutely loathe the feeling of working out and then going to play golf. My coach used to do it to us in college. You got workouts at 9 a.m. and we're on the tee at 11. 
And it was the worst, you know, we would qualify and everybody would shoot 76 and the coach would be like, you guys, what are you doing out there? And we're like, we feel like noodles. We can't do anything because we just got like, we just got run through the grinder by the football strength coach. (laughs) So I hated that feeling. And when I became a pro and I was in charge of my own schedule, I never did that. But then um, at the Memorial one year, a thunderstorm came through, which is so common. And yeah. I remember uh, going to the gym. My trainer said, well, it looks like we're done for the day. You want to knock out a workout? And I was like, ah, okay, sure. So we go in, we do a full workout and I'm sweaty and, you know, it's an hour long and um, I'm like, okay, well, at least we got that done. And then we get a message, rules official walking through says, guys, we're going to restart in 40 minutes. And I'm like, mm. oh, back to college. Here we are. I just finished working <laughs> out and I got to get on the team. So I go out and I felt awesome. I felt strong. I felt like alert. My decision-making was crisp. My, you know, I, I felt really, really good. And so um, it was great for me. It happened by accident, but I was able to put that, that loathing behind me and actually implement a little bit of exercise before the round, which is, uh, that was, shoot, when was that? Like probably 2001. So I've been doing that for 20 yeah. years now. And it's a, it's a good way to warm up, you know, and I would suggest anybody out there who's going to play golf, even the three, four time a year golfer, do a little bit of something before your round, you know, get on a foam roller, do some stretches on the floor, some body weight squats, just something to kind of get your heart rate up because blood going into your body and your heart rate sending everything through. And um, it's just, it's really good to get your body warmed up and it'll help you with injuries and it'll help you play better. And once we're at the range, hopefully warmed up, at least with our body. I mean, what should be that focus of that range session for these high handicaps? Well, that, that is a little hard to say because everybody's so different. I mean, for a good player, I would say that you want to work on focusing on a target and trying to get your mind out there as, as opposed to in here. And, you know, don't work on being perfect with the back, but work on letting the target draw your ball into it. You know, like a, I always think of like, I didn't play baseball growing up, but I've fielded ground balls and I know what it feels like to catch the ball in your glove. And then where's your mind go? As soon as you're trying to throw that player out at first base, yeah. that ball's in your glove. Are you thinking about like now, how much, how far do I take this back? No, you're thinking about the, the first baseman with his glove pointed right to you. That's the way that golf mm-hmm. ought to be played too. You're not thinking about what's in here. I think if you're thinking about what's going on in, in your, in your body and your swing, then um, you're just, you're, you're taking away from your natural creativity and your athleticism of like doing what's necessary to get the ball towards the target. For sure. Well, I'm looking at your golf success with Reagan on the bag. And I think about like how much has Reagan meant to the actual golf success, not just having the joy of your son on the back. Um, a lot. And uh, I'm glad you asked that because I love talking about this and it's it, every time I discuss Reagan on my bag, it helps me learn a little bit about myself and something that I'm going to remember forever when Reagan's not caddying for me. For instance, yes, you hit it right on the head. It's joyful having him caddying out there because I get to hang around with, with one of my favorite people in the world. He and I and my other son, Connor, and I, and Lisa and I, we have just this great relationship, all of us, and it's just a true blessing. So aside from that, though, the dynamic between me and Reagan includes zero conflict. Zero. And uh, what I mean by that is, we don't always agree on everything on, on shots, like how the wind's going to affect it or how long it's going to play. I might think this shot's going to play 200. Reagan might think I'm only in the 190s. When maybe I'm, all, I'm in the 192 range. That's not a conflict. That's 
difference in opinion and we arrive at the answer well we don't always arrive at the correct answer but we arrive at what we think is the answer without conflict you know um there's just there's none of that uh that little bit of doubt that hangs around that um i had it with all my caddies in the past and you know i'm i have had some great caddies definitely all the caddies that have worked for me have been excellent at their job and I've made good relationships with all my caddies. All the guys that have worked for me in the past, have, we're all very good friends. And I, I'm very proud of that. Um, you're really good guys. But there's always just been a little bit of conflict there, like uh, a little bit of that. You know, I wish, uh, man, I sure wish I could get you to hit driver more often. Or I wish I could, you know, get you to play a little <laughs> bit less read on those on those breaks, on the putts. Just a little bit of that, you know. Um, where that just leaves a little bit of doubt where, because there's, it's impossible, I think, for you to be playing golf out there with a caddy when it means so much to you. And you know, it means so much to them where you don't want to accommodate some of their, um, what's the word there, uh, you know, their input or their, um, their suggestions. You want to accommodate some of that. I want to empower my caddies to make good decisions and to be forthright with telling me and, and not have anything um, stopping them from saying something. And so I'll empower them by accommodating sometimes. And that's not always the right thing to do, but you have to totally believe in what you're doing. And I've always been a good decision maker on the course for the most part, I'm not saying I don't make wrong decisions, but for the most part, that's been a strength of mine. And so with Reagan, just strictly speaking performance, if you take like the joy of having my son out there caddying, we have no conflict. We agree on the strategy of the way to attack holes. We agree on how far I should aim from the, flag stick on holes that have danger on one side or the other. We agree on holes that are driver or not driver. We think the same way, the same way. And um, so the conflict is gone. He's learned how to play golf by watching me. And I mean, I could go on, we could do two podcasts on um, just this subject. <laughs> it's something I really, really love talking about. And um, I don't really want to see it in, but unfortunately it's going to come to an end at some point. Mm. Do you think it'll be in the, in the next few months or is it hard to say for sure? Well, uh, the original plan was that he was going to caddy for me for one tournament. That was the safe way open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think you can probably like figure out the rest of the story. Um, he started uh, at Delta. Safeway. He, he was in between. Well, he, his job, he's working for Delta Airlines and his job got affected by the pandemic. And so he had some time off and he just suggested like, hey, I'll caddy a week. It's been a while, you know, he caddied for me <laughs> yeah. when he was a kid. I'll caddy for you again. And I thought, well, that sounds great. I've played more golf with Reagan um, around the, during the pandemic than anybody. We play all the time. And we, all we do when we play golf with each other is we caddy for one another. I, I mean, we take a cart. We don't walk, walk that often, but we go over his shots and I caddy for him and we decide on things together. And then he goes over my shots and we, it's like a, it's, we caddy for each other. And it's, it's so fun. And, <laughs> And it just uh, naturally just worked out great. And so we, he, I told him, you know, caddy for me at Safeway and he, we won. And then um, caddy for me again, you know, uh, at Sanderson Farms. And if you finish top five, we'll keep going. And when I finished the 18th hole, we were in fifth on Sunday, I finished 12th. And then so I, um, Kip Henley was caddy for me, my regular caddy at the time. Yeah. And we, I went to Vegas with Kip and um, I played good except for on Sunday. And then uh, I decided to play Bermuda, which is a tough place for caddies to go. Your player needs to finish probably around 20th or better to, for the caddy to break even that week. And so um, I figured Kip wouldn't mind if Reagan caddied there. So Reagan caddied there, fourth place. Yeah. And um, at the end of Bermuda, 
is when uh, Lisa and Reagan and I were, were um, we had to wait around till Monday for our flight and we were at the hotel and we thought, you know what, let's talk about this. His start date was supposed to be two days after that with his job at Delta Airlines. And uh, so the conversation basically went like, do you like doing this? Yes. I really like you doing this. This is fun. And we're having some success. It's just a blast. Are you interested in continuing? Yes, I would love to. If, if I can work it out with my team at Delta. And he called in. Delta was just the, we know some people at Delta. <laughs> and right. um, some key, I don't want to say any names, but I'll just say this. Some key people <laughs> at Delta. And so um, the conversations with them were just perfect. I mean, um, my friend, is Ed Bastian. He's the CEO of Delta. And I called him and I said, Ed, I'm not asking you to do anything. I just wanted your opinion. You got daughters that are grown. There's a chance for my son to keep caddying for me. He's supposed to start with Delta in two days at your company. What do you think? And he's like, Stuart, we love Reagan working here. He's going to work here for 30 or 40 years. One year is not going to stop his career. This is something you could never expect to have happen for you guys as a family. Take advantage yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. It couldn't have been a better thing for somebody like Ed to say to us. And so, yeah. um, that's kind of how Reagan got started caddying full-time for me this year, but he's getting married in the end of July. And so um, we don't really think caddying is a great way to start your married life. So the, the way we have it set right now is Reagan's going to caddy for me through the FedEx cup playoffs. And then um, after that, it'll be back to work somewhere. And we think maybe Delta, we're not sure. Mm. And I'm sure with, with Reagan coming out to his first open championship as caddy, I mean, you're a former winner, you know, how former winners are treated there. You love links golf. That's gotta be a special to look forward to this year. And, and yeah, and, and for sure. But the biggest thing that I've been looking forward to the, actually the open is, the, is my favorite tournament that I've been planning for Reagan to caddy in um, the masters and the open are the kind of the top two, but Reagan has a real affinity for golf courses and he loves design and he's just a real like student of the game. And so he loves links. He loves links golf. And um, I was just hoping that he would be able to caddy all the way through the open championship. And that um, it looks like it's going to happen. So uh, we get to go there. And my only regret is that I wish it was at St. Andrews because um, that's my mm-hmm. favorite course. And he also loves St. Andrews. He's never played it, never caddied there, but he'll get, um, uh, a taste of the open championship at, at Royal St. George's. Hmm. What's your favorite course outside of the Rota links course out there? You love Ireland. You love Scotland, England. Uh-huh. I really do. I haven't played a ton, but I'd say, um, you know, it's my favorite first nine holes of any course in the world inside or outside the Rota is La Hinch. The front nine at La Hinch, I think it's just a absolute carnival to play. It's so fun. Um, but I would say over there on that same West coast of Ireland, I like Doombeg a lot and it's kind of a modern course. It's only been around for like 25 years, but it just feels so cool. Like Greg Norman built this place and then did an awesome job. And I really love playing there. It's a really fun course to play. I got some great memories. That's where we spent the, uh, the four or five days leading up to the open in Oh nine uh, when I won Lisa, Connor, Reagan, just uh, the three of us playing golf and, and Lisa hanging out and, just checking out the town and it was just a blast. I love that course too. How are you uh, going to handle, I mean, you're not there yet, but how are you going to handle these um, tighter restrictions here for the open championship kind of way? How are you going to manage all that? You think? Well, I mean, it's, um, it's going to be um, <laughs> quite an experience and um, quite ironic too, going from uh, 
what we're going to experience at the open next week, bubble wise to the next week at the 3M in Minnesota, where there's no more testing, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, two different worlds colliding in a way within about 24 hour period. Uh, we were, we're ready and, you know, we'll, we'll spend the time we need to spend at the golf course and, and we'll take our time doing it. Um, mm. There won't be any rush to come back to the place we're staying. Cause that's the only place you can go. No restaurants, no, no bars, no uh, grocery stores, no, nothing. Just open back experience. to the room. Back to the room. Yep. So um, it'll be, uh, it'll be a unique thing to do, but um, you know, it is what it is and everybody's going to have to do the same thing. And the open has been really good about, trying to uh, accommodate what we need on site at the venue. So they're keeping the dining open for everybody. So it's open for, it's usually it's just players and, and families. And this year it's players, caddies, anybody who's like essential personnel um, mm. trainers and they're open all the way through dinner time. So you can pretty much eat all your meals out there. If you want to, there's, there's other options too. You can have food delivered in groceries. Yeah. You know, it's similar to here where you got some options to, delivery and sure i hope they have good wi-fi i'm sure we'll be streaming a little bit <laughs> i'm sure well here i'll get you out here on this uh phil mickelson winning the pga at an older age at 50 um what what does it do for you in terms of what you can believe could happen these next few years for stewart's sake um well i absolutely believe i still have what it takes to win another major and it was before phil won <laughs> yeah. all that did was like just get my rpms <laughs> up a little bit um, golf is just such a strange game. You just never know when you're going to dig in there and find something and be able to hold on to it for a week, even the best. I mean, even I would say even Tiger Woods probably would say that there was some weeks where he just found something extra and won. I mean, he's won a gazillion times, but even Tiger would probably tell you that. Um, Phil, you know, he, I played with Phil the last competitive round before the PGA, which was the Sunday of uh, Wells Fargo in Charlotte. Neither of us played the week after and he and I played together Sunday and I'm, uh, he would tell you the same thing. And I'm going to tell you right now, it was not one of the prettier rounds I've seen on the PJ tour in my career. And Reagan was like, that's what Phil Mickelson plays like. And I was like, no, no, that's not, that's just what Phil Mickelson played like today. And he of course knows that, you know, golf is not, you don't always play your best. But to see Phil go from the round we played and he was searching for things and struggling a little bit and just frustrated. I could hear him talking to his caddy, Tim, who is his brother. I could hear their conversations and I could hear Phil like just striving for something. And um, wow, you know, to go a week later and, and he won. It was pretty amazing. It just, like I said, it just revved up the RPMs for me. It just, uh, I just feel like, now's a, a, a time and I know that I'm on the sunset of my career in a way you know for playing in big time tournament golf but I still got plenty of power plenty of speed I think pretty well and um, my body feels good and so um, I still love playing golf and I, I love pursuing golf that's uh, the biggest thing that I think is going to keep me going for a long time. Great stuff Stuart hey great visiting with you here on Beyond the Clubhouse thanks for taking some time buddy. All right you got it always a pleasure to catch up with you. Well, big thank you to Stuart Sink for joining me there. I love his insight on the Open Championship, the restrictions. There's a lot 
that they have going on for this particular year. So it was interesting to get his opinion, his perspective on what these restrictions are going to be like. Uh, and just great stuff with his son, Reagan, and just so much that's been going on there. I love what he said about Phil. Uh, <laughs> inspiration there, but he all, already had a ton of inspiration too at this point in his career at age 48. So enjoyed it there with Stuart Sink. Hope you did as well. we got more podcasts coming along down the line, and we'll talk to you soon on Beyond the Clubhouse.